Hey everybody, welcome to the Exit Podcast. Tonight we're going to talk about natalism and a conference that we're putting together to uh, to address this problem. I'm here with Drew Gorham. He's a friend of mine, member of the group, runs innovation workshops for the uh, Department of Defense. He's going to be involved in helping us to organize and facilitate this conversation. It's going to be December 1st and 2nd in Austin, Texas, and really excited to kind of show the world what, what Drew can do and, and to address this problem together. So welcome to the show, Drew. Hey, Kevin. Good to be with you, man. So tell me a little bit about why this problem was a concern to you and, and, and why you sort of, I mean, it, it was you that kind of brought it to my attention as something we should talk about. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't a concern of mine for a long time. I, I just was not tracking this as like a global issue really at all. Um, I, I kind of had the assumption that overpopulation was, was the big, um, crunch <laughs> that we're going to have to deal with. Um, and then, uh, I, th- I think Elon maybe started talking about it and I, and that kind of got me into some other Twitter people who are talking about this as a problem. And the unique thing about this problem is that uh, you can make 20 year predictions based on live births that are going on this year. Uh, so it's, it's like extraordinarily predictive and it's like your ability to forecast what's going to happen with the population, just in terms of raw numbers. Um, and then as I started digging into it, I kind of realized, wow, how, how upside down a lot of these population pyramids are. And it's not just Japan, actually Japan's like number 20th something in uh, population, like a uh, emergency. South Korea is number one. I think Italy is close behind. About 60% of countries today are below replacement rates, which is like 2.1 births per female. That's like the minimum to just sustain like a a population rectangle. (laughs) What you want is a population pyramid. And uh, yeah, so anyway, it's uh, I I was kind of shocked. And the trends for all the countries that are above replacement right now are trending downwards. So right. it's, it's almost a global problem. Um, it's, we're doing the, the boomers, uh, bless them, like gave us uh, a nice bump in children after world war two, <laughs> which Europe did not have. So we're a little better off than Europe, but, um, we're catching up. And, uh, there are a ton of economic, social, cultural implications of this problem. And it's also surprising how uh, difficult it is to solve and to isolate what variables are causing this thing. So anyway, that all got me interested. And I think there's a conversation to be had. And it's mostly happening over Twitter right now. And wouldn't it be cool if we got these people together in a room we talk about the problem, all the different dimensions of it. And then if we could also take some time to really try to come up with solutions and design them together. Um, anyway, that, that's what got me interested. And in. I think I brought it to you. It's like, hey, we should see if we can bring people together around this issue and see what happens when you put people in a room. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit more about, about this, the scope of this problem. It's when people imagine the global population, you know, the, the UN says the population is going to cap around 10 billion in, in 2100, and then it's going to start to decline. And you think of population as like one number, but that, that crest of that wave is actually going to take place with a dramatically different population than we have today. It's going to be a billion of those 10 billion people are going to be over 80. About another 2 billion are going to be uh, past retirement age. And it's substantially worse um, in, in, in Europe and, and the U.S. And it's looking like you're going to have roughly four adult dependents for every elderly or for every working age family. Uh, in the US. And that may not seem so dramatic, but like right now, there's about four workers for every elderly dependent in the US. Uh, so it's it's the inverse almost. So it would flip to four dependents for every one working adult. Well, four, four dependents for every couple. For every and, couple. And, and, and what that's going to... And right now, Medicare and Social Security are already 46% of the federal budget. So it's already this massive, massive expenditure when we've got all these elderly dependents split four ways, each of them, you know, uh, as far as yeah. their, their expenses and their burden. And so to, to pile this enormous population of elderly people, uh, you know, the, the U.S. and in the U.S., as a matter of fact, is, 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 you know, much better equipped to handle this than, say, India or China or Latin America where these same population pyramid inversion trends are, are, are predicted to happen. And like here, it's going to be rough. Like you're going to have, uh, I mean, just, just from like a human suffering perspective, you're going to have people essentially warehoused under really, really bad conditions by people who don't know them, don't necessarily care about them. But in places like India, China, Latin America, it's like th there may not be just enough food and and enough enough productive capacity, period, to take care of all those people. And so you're talking about like you know saying saying the global population will cap and then crest. It's like people almost like take a sigh of relief when they see that because they're like ah the overpopulation problem is solved. But it's like no, there's just much more serious problem. Um, and and it's it's beyond just sort of the the task of like feeding and, and and caring for these people all of our economic systems the, the way that we finance debt the way the well the way the government finances debt and and services its debt the way that uh you know development projects are are the capital is maintained, the machinery to do like so many things depend on like, well, there's going to be reliable economic growth. And even under conditions of like the population rectangle, like you could imagine a situation where, you know, our population is not growing, but we get a little bit smarter every year. And, and so we have some innovation growth, right? Uh, in terms of our yeah. our economic productivity and, and maybe that enables some of these systems to maintain themselves. But when that, that assumption of reliable secular, meaning secular, meaning long-term growth collapses, um, 
it really it's 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 almost like a divide by zero situation where it like really blows up a lot of the financing math and so things like well you know it's just like a business like if you if you can't uh if you can't convince a banker that you're going to have um you know lots of lots of uh receivables uh, you, you know, you're, not, you're just not going to be able to finance a loan. It's not. It's not like you're going to have a high interest rate. They're just not going to lend to you, and so yeah. a lot of things just break down. And in terms of in terms of infrastructure, like you look at what's happening in in Detroit, and it's like the it, it's it's not half as expensive to pump water and electricity and sewer to half the population spread over that area. It's way more expensive, particularly per capita. And, and so unless you like forcibly uproot all of these scattered people and like force them to consolidate closer to the city center, all these services become radically more expensive. And, and, you know, there's also just elements of like not having enough institutional knowledge around to even maintain the infrastructure. Uh, so it compounds upon itself. And not only is the, is the infrastructure delivery more expensive, but it's actually like less safe. And of course, when uh, it's, it's, it's much cheaper to, for instance, uh, maintain a bridge than to rebuild a bridge that's collapsed or, or, you know, purge a, a water system that's become contaminated. Like there are so many things that depend on just keeping the wheels on that are going to become so much harder under conditions of, of population collapse. Yeah. Yeah. It, just the economic uh, angle alone is enough to like raise a lot of alarm bells. And we're not talking about 200, 300 years from now, really. This, this is, this is coming quickly. We're talking about our children, our grandchildren, or the world that they grow up in. And that's, you know, if we're lucky, we'll get to see them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is something reasonably reasonable to expect in our lifetimes to, to see. Yeah. And, and starting, I start with the economic consequences because that's the easiest stuff to talk about. It's really right. uncontroversial. And that's yeah. also where I want to, kind of open the conference uh, day one of the conference is going to be like, let's talk about the scope of this problem because we can all come together and agree that like you, we can all look at the same social security numbers. Every millennial in America knows they're never going to see a dime of social security. And you know, you, you watch your hundreds, thousands of dollars every month uh, come out of your paycheck and, and you know, it's not going to be there for you. Um, and so that's a conversation that we can start with. But I also want to move into like, and, and, and you know, obviously um, the sort of humanitarian catastrophe that's coming. Uh, but I also want to move into like, I, I actually think that Italy is a good place. And the people who built it and the way that they think and the institutional memory and the, and the, the aesthetics of that country and of South Korea and Japan, that those should continue. And it's, it's just not obvious to me that, that like, even, even if you stipulate that like immigration, like solves this population problem, first of all, it doesn't, the, the, 
the the developing world's fertility is collapsing at the same rate. Latin America is already at two point one and falling. So you're not you're not going to solve this with with immigration. But even if you stipulate that you could, it's like all of this all of this culture and and folkways and all these things would be lost. And and you know. <laughs> They can talk about it like, well, like anybody can be an American, anybody can be a British, anybody can be Italian. But the fact is, there's there's like no effort to actually inculcate that culture into the emigrating population, and it's actually viewed as like a bad thing to do to like try mm-hmm. to make Italians. And so, right. and so, like, let's just be honest about what we're saying. It's 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 like we don't care that those that those folkways and that culture and that aesthetic will vanish. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that I've been sort of picking up on in this research is that um, the policy think tank people are quite aware of this problem. They talk about population collapse. They talk about immigration as a way to solve it. And they also admit that immigration will not solve it. <laughs> and of course, they do not talk about within... Uh, the immigrating populations, like where, what's the breakdown of where the immigrants are coming from? What are the uh, birth rates of the different populations of immigrants and the birth rates of the native-born citizens? Uh, so they they definitely stay away from that topic. They try to keep the conversation more of like a human is a human. We're just talking about biomass here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and fungible like, economic units fungible economic units. Uh, it makes their models much cleaner. And, <laughs> I, and, uh, and so they, so they definitely don't get into, uh, uh, yeah, who, like who, what are the birth rate breakdowns by cultural background, by ethnicity and so forth. But even if we assume their human biomass economic unit, you know, a fundamental uh, neuroconformity assumption, it's still a very dire picture. Yeah, the math still just doesn't work. This, the math and, still doesn't work. And it's yeah. even worse when you look at it uh, more nuanced and looking at culture by culture, the breakdown there. Yeah, and I mean, I think like even even on like the microcosm level, I think about my family and the way that like people can look at my kids and they can go, ah, those are, those are Dolan kids. Those are Dolan boys. That's what they look like. And the way that we argue and the way that we tell jokes and like the little traditions and the memories that we have as a family, it's like, and, and I, so I actually, I actually did a little, uh, a little study, a little demographic study of my own um, high school graduating class. And I looked at because I'm I'm uh, getting to the point where um, at least for the for the ladies in my high school graduating class the fertility window is is, is just about closed. And so I thought it, it would be interesting to like take a look at, at at who has started families. And it's it it essentially so the, uh, a guy um, Stephen Shaw is demographer um, who who I've been in touch with. Um, uh, he, he mentioned on Jordan Peterson's podcast that like, it's not the case that, you know, uh, 
we used to have three kids per family and now we have two or we used to have two and now we have one. It's more like the same number of people or the, the same families that were going to have two or three kids, they're still having two or three kids or four or five. What's actually happening is a huge swath of the population is just realizing zero fertility. And so you, you look at like just the dramatic selection effects. And I mean, I remember most of these people and, uh, as I was, as I was going through the list, it was like, this, it was this big Facebook group it had like 550 people in it. And my graduating class was, was somewhere in the order of like 1700. So it was like a pretty good sample. And just thinking about like how many of these people, like their whole, where they come from and all the things that their family like was about and the little, like, cause they, their, their, their memories and their traditions, their culture, just as real as mine. And it will just be gone. And, um, and that seems like a tragedy to me. That seems awful. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's, and, and when you think about, and even that is, even that is, is maybe a little too like, a little too like quanti because like you think about the what it will mean to all those people to not realize that fertility um because uh, yeah. some, something like 95 percent, essentially all psychologically normal people want children that's uh when you ask them when you ask them yes um and it's the the realized fertility is is about 60 percent, and that's that's more or less borne out by what I saw in my little, you know, non-scientific study. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. Yeah. And I, I think the, uh, to bring it down from the family level, even more closely to the personal level with, I've kind of noticed that. Tell me if you think I'm right. When you, when I had kids, it, I felt like my, I changed. I'm almost like on a biological level. Yeah. It was, it was akin to puberty. I would say in terms of like a dramatic shift in my brain and body. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so if we look at that, that rite of passage of having children is like a second puberty and it's, it's even more dramatic for women. I think uh, you look at all these people who are kind of missing out on this. I don't know the second puberty <laughs> analogy. Yeah. A, I think it carries and. And it's one of those things like when you were before, you know, thinking back to when you were a kid, before you went through puberty, were you like, oh man, I can't wait to go through puberty someday. I'm like really looking forward to that. No, you were just having a good time, living your kid life and not really thinking about that too much. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and then once you go through puberty, it's, how do you explain that to a, to a kid? Like, Hey, this you, you don't, you like going through, it's like, great. I feel better now. I feel like I'm growing as a human being more complex. Uh, so I, I think it's interesting the, for the people that are going to have zero kids, how can we think about what are, what are their experiences? You know, what are they really going through? Do they know they're going through it? And then what what are the implications and you know in a society where one person one vote a we we all have equal voice um and the number of childless people i think is 
I'd be interested. I haven't seen the exact numbers, but I'm curious to project that out and see as a percentage of our democracy, what percent are going to be childless in the coming years. And what that does to your, your orientation toward the future, what that does to the way that you make like policy decisions. Um, like I think even, you know, let's say that the, that the biological change of, of the, like sort of rewiring your brain as a result of having children, like let's say that's woo and it's not true. And it's just like, you know, you have this rational calculus that changes even under those conditions. It's like y- you having this little person who's, who's, um, whose fate you are, you are, even less in control of than you're in control of your own fate, right? Because they have this whole layer of decision-making that they do. Um, it dramatically changes your your attitude toward, like, the way society ought to look. And it also changes, I mean, I, I, think, I think you just observe, especially if you have two or three, you start to observe, like, oh... I really tried to raise these kids all the same and they're working with very simple, like a very similar like deck that they were like shuffled from. Um, but they're still like dramatically different and they you can't like, maintain the blank slate hypothesis. It's impossible. It's impossible. No, it completely and, shatters him. I mean, and, and I, I, I've known lots of um, progressive parents who have been like, I had girls and I had boys and I really tried to get them both to play with trucks and I really tried to get both of them to play dress up and it just didn't go that way. And like just the, the observation of, of humanity under conditions, like you're never going to care more about another person and like, you're never going to look more carefully and, and be more invested in, like what is actually the truth here than you are with your own kids. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a tremendously, it's a tremendously, it's a transformative uh, experience. And I think it also, um, it also closes like a lot of psychological loops. It, 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 it allows you to, um, not relive your childhood, but get like a triangulation of your childhood, if that makes sense. Like a second point of observation that gives you like this almost like depth of field. Maybe that's a weird analogy, but like yeah, it, it, it gives you different angles and a richer perspective on like what it was like growing up and, and what your experiences felt like and what maybe the truth of those experiences was, you know, cause that's not always the same. And, um, and then even beyond that, like, you know, I think, I think you and I are talking about kind of the experience of little kids, but that's because that's what we have. We don't have bigger kids yet. Um, but beyond, uh, again, going back to the, 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 the Shaw episode, uh, on, on Jordan Peterson, he talks about, um, surveys of, you know, the surveys of like, do you want children, but also the surveys of like, 
what's the most important thing in your life after age 30? And like almost everyone becomes disillusioned with the, with the idea of career at age 30. Mm-hmm. Like for almost no one is that their top priority, like their primary uh, source of meaning in their lives. Uh, it doesn't mean they don't enjoy their job, but it's like, oh, I've, I've been doing PowerPoint long enough that I recognize that life is probably not about that. And, and so, so what happens, I think, in a lot of cases is sort of the, the fertility decision-making has to be made prior to the re- that realization and so a lot of people spend their optimum sort of child rearing time uh, working with some really bad memes <laughs> about like what life is for. And then by the time they have this realization, it's, it's, it's like a scramble to, uh, to get on the, uh, on the kids train. And, you know, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. And, and I, I, I want to try to get people together to like, you know, it's Twitter and, and, and just sort of the, the like online discourse in general really lends itself to like facile solutions. Like, sure. Like, um, is, is, is hypergamy a truth about the way men and women work? Yeah. But like, is it the case that the solution is like, you know, these chicks need to stop being so spoiled and just, you know, marry me the, the fat slob with the Cheeto dust? Like, no, that's not the solution. And, and, and so what I want to talk through is like, and, and I, I'm trying to make the conversation like we've, we've invited like a lot of, a lot of, uh, women to come and, 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 uh, commentate on this thing because I want to really engineer a solution where we all get eye lock and we all go like, yes, that's, that's the pain point. That's what it is. Here's how we, uh, here's how we fix it together. Like there's, there's just no, there's no top down. There's no like sermon you can preach on this. It's, uh, and then like, even just from my perspective, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy, but observing the way that the, the way that childbearing affects women and the way that it in like a woman in her twenties is at her like most socially desirable and she can kind of, you know, if she's if she's like high value in general, she can like write her ticket at, during that period, and it's like a limited time only kind of a deal. And so to tell that woman like I want you instead to uh, dramatically alter your body and dramatically like abandon a lot of like hedonic experiences of 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 travel and sort of self care and having lots of leisure time. And, um, like I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, 
it's hard for me to even say the word self-care without sounding a little bit contemptuous, but I, but like for real, that's a real sacrifice. That's a real thing to ask somebody to give up. Yeah. And, and so you're like your, your life, your story about yourself has to be about a lot more than sort of in the moment utility or, or pleasure. That's a tough, yeah. tough thing and, to ask. And you, gotta, you gotta figure it out. What you're pointing out is like, okay, that that's where we are <laughs> in the conversation. We we need to make the case. Yeah. Right? Because you better have a good story for why you're foregoing all of those uh yeah, all, all that um power, social capital. And not, yeah. uh spending it uh and I think the, you know, it's, it's more like an investment approach rather than a consumption approach to your social capital. Right. So there, but, but anyway, that's, you're pointing out where, where we need to um, come together. And yeah. And I mean, another, another even dimension to that is like, let's assume that you make all those sacrifices and you have those kids and like, what is to stop your spouse whose social capital is not changing on the same schedule as your social capital is changing? You know, what's to stop him from trading up once he's like that? That I think was fundamentally the uh, the argument of like second wave ish feminism about like why women needed to be in the workforce. It was like, yeah, it was like you have to protect yourself against defection against mm -hmm. uh, being betrayed. And, um, you know, it's like, is, is, a, is a paycheck or a trip to Europe or like, you know, being able to, you know, uh, go to a spa day anytime you want to, is that like better than, you know, the love of a little baby or, or like domestic bliss? Not obviously, but it's the check clears like it, like you, you can, you can sort of guarantee that for yourself in a way that you can't guarantee the, uh, the, the domestic dream. And so you know who I, we should I, ask, huge, the, uh, we should ask the effective altruists. <laughs> they can solve this problem for us. Oh man. Well, we might invite some effective altruists, so I can't say too much. <laughs> But, oh um, boy! Oh boy! Watch out! <laughs> Everybody's invited. Big tent. Big, Big tent. Um, but like, there's this huge issue of trust. There's this huge issue of we have to. We have an existential problem that we cannot solve in like an adversarial or trustless way. And so you like, you got to either, and, and, and you know, I think, I think individuals can do it right now just by the sort of combination of individual goodwill and successfully communicating that goodwill in a way that another person will believe. And, and the, the sort of kismet of find like two people finding each other who, who, neither intends to defect and they, they, they want to take care of each other. Um, and that's a beautiful thing, but I want to live in a world where like less of that, it like, it didn't used to be the case 
that it had to be this, uh, this very, like a miracle essentially, um, for that to transpire and like not to overstate it. Like I think lots of people find happy, happy families and happy marriages, but they're harder to find. They're a lot harder to find. Um, and they're going to be harder for our kids to find, I think is the right. the other part, part piece of this that caused us to, to care more about this <laughs> problem. And yeah. uh, we, were, we were kind of talking about how, you know, reflecting on how we met our wives and how the environment has changed so much today, 2023. I met my wife in 2007. Um, and, and then how, it, how dramatically harder it would have been to meet her today. And then yeah. the implication for our kids, you know, 15 or 20 years in the future, meeting their spouse, uh, how's it going to be for them? And what, is there anything we could do to help increase the odds that they're going to find someone they love and want to have children with. I think what, what we're experiencing essentially like the, the sort of boomer generation to, to like not be too hard on them. Like they really expected that the infrastructure of finding a family getting, and, and even, even like just the economic infrastructure of like, it'll be easy. It'll be easier for my kids than it was for me in this sort of like all boats float. Like I don't necessarily have to do a ton to make that happen for them. And therefore like anything that I do to either like impose or even suggest like what their solution ought to be is like a little bit arrogant on my part. Like that's the, my, my, my kindest interpretation of what like our parents and grandparents generation was. And I think this is actually how they perceive themselves is like, I just wanted to let, I just wanted to let you spread your wings. I wanted to let you be exactly who you wanted to be. And I didn't want to like, I felt that if I, it was such a fragile, delicate beauty. And if I even touched it, I would, it would, I would mar it. I would mar the beautiful uh, snowflake. That's you. And, um, and I think, what our generation is facing is like if I don't get involved in a, in a pretty serious way, um, I'm going to have to watch this, this devastatingly horrible, lonely, miserable outcome transpire. And so it's like the risk that, uh, the risk that I, I sort of in my, zealousness make the wrong call uh yes I'm, I'm willing to pick up that that risk in a way that right. maybe weren't yeah and i think the uh, my intuition is like the best way to start addressing that is just to get together with pe other problem aware people and talk about it because honestly i don't i don't have the solution <laughs> right i don't fully understand the problem I'm seeing dimensions of the problem and, uh, and that, but that's what we're hoping to flesh out in this conference is, yeah. What are all those problem dimensions? Can, is there anything that can be done solution wise? Like what's causing this problem? 
what can be done about it. Um, it that's where we're hoping to get. And we have yeah. two days to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, two days to start. Two days to, two two days days to start. Open, open the conversation, open the lines of communication between these people who, you know, all of whom a really encouraging sign that I'm seeing like across the sort of dissident political spectrum or, or even like dissident cultural spectrum, just the like non mainstream I'm seeing the, the, the increasing awareness of the problem is making people more inclined to cooperate and more inclined to talk to one another and um, I'm more careful in their approach to to uh, different ideas because I think everybody's kind of like, well, I'm stumped. So, you know, let's let's talk. Let's try to, let's see if we can figure something out. And I think, you know, why are, why are we the people to do this? Essentially, I think the answer is like, we didn't see anybody else addressing it in any kind of organized way. And I happen to know a lot of people with, with good takes on this topic. We saw the, uh, the end of men documentary by Tucker Carlson, which was about the, uh, a topic that we haven't addressed at all really so far, which is the, the potential neuroendocrine component to this, which is like, are, are the foods that we eat and the ways that we're living, are they, are they making us actually less capable of fertility or even like even less capable of pair bonding, even less capable of like attracting a spouse? Um, you know, uh, like there, there, there's definitely the element of like, oh, you're, you know, you're like your sperm counts too low to, to realize, you know, fertility, but like, yeah, the 60, 62% drop in sperm counts in 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even, yeah. And like, and like the, the average, uh, the average like Gen Z, like 18 year old has the same grip strength as like a 70 year old man. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy what's happening. And I think there's also this element of like, what does, what does that hormonal change do to people in terms of just their like will and vitality and their, and their desires? Um, who does it, who does it encourage them to bond with both as friends and as potential mates? And like, like what is that doing to us, um, psychologically? And, and, uh, it was fascinating episode. And I basically realized that I knew like almost all of the people who were being interviewed for that segment. And I thought these are people who should be part of this, like more, uh, more formal, deeper conversation, uh, you know, because like, and, and the documentary, which was great was very like problem awareness. It was like, let's put this on TV so that people can go, Oh shit. Um, and I think maybe what we're doing is like the next step, which is like, what's to be done about this? How can we, how can we get consensus? And I want to talk a little bit about why uh why i think you're the guy for the job um i i've seen you do some of your your workshop facilitation uh professionally and you've got just some great tools for building 
consensus. And I don't mean like groupthink, but like getting everyone's voice heard in a room and allowing uh, what you say, the term you use is to, to allow the best ideas to rise to the top and the bad ideas to like die a quiet death. So that, um, so that and, and then by the time you've, by the time you've reached that, that best solution, everyone's had their hand on it and everyone feels like their voice was heard and they were respected and, and, and they got to be part of the solution. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit about like the tools that you use to run these workshops. Sure. Yeah. So I've been doing a workshop facilitation now for about seven years and it kind of came out of this frustration personally with like group brainstorming sessions. <laughs> Aren't those the worst things ever <laughs> where you basically have a bunch of people sitting around a table talking, you know, usually one or two people talk the most. And they, those people also tend to not have the best ideas. <laughs> uh, and I, I just really hated that style of collaboration. And so I started searching for other tools, you know, especially out of the Stanford Design School and um, this uh, design firm called IDEO and a little bit of Google too. Yes, Google had <laughs> come up with some of these things. Uh, but it, it, basically... It's a methodology you can use to guide a group group conversation that leads to decisions and like real solutions to a problem. And you can do it in a, in a matter of a couple of hours. It involves not a whole lot of talking. It's a lot of getting, instead of trying to get ideas from a group, groups come up with terrible ideas. You get ideas from individuals. And then you kind of kind of vote on those uh, those ideas. The best ones rise to the top, and then you can form teams, small teams. We're talking like seven to ten people who are most interested in bringing that idea about. And so that's what we're looking at for day two of the conference. Smaller group, about seventy. I think we have seventy five tickets for day two. Um, and we got 300 tickets for day one. So it'll be a smaller group, closed door sessions, well, phones off. <laughs> and we're going to talk about solutions and try to get realistic about what are some projects that we could spin out out of this. Now, we've talked about all the dimensions of the problem, the, uh, the endocrine ish and environmental issues, the cultural issues, the male-female dynamics, economic issues. So we want to kind of break that apart and pull out small pieces of those problems that we can form uh, teams of about seven to 10 people around and then go through this workshop process to come out with some solution ideas, you know, and we're not talking about the solution ideas like abolish female hypergamy, <laughs> you know, just the outrageously uh, difficult um, high effort solutions. We're looking for kind of the lower effort, higher impact, quick win type of type of deals. The hope is that by getting together, we can actually form lasting projects that continue beyond the conference. And that, that was part of the impetus of the conference really is like the solutions are not going to come from Twitter. I'm sorry. The, these projects don't get off the ground in in the virtual space. 
They require face to face. You have to show up. You have to look people in the eye. You have to size them up as well as allies. So you need to, if you're coming to this conference, you're looking for allies uh, to help deal with this problem at both at a personal level and kind of a societal wide level. And you're also looking to potentially attach yourself in some way to one of the solutions that comes out of it. And there's lots of ways you can engage in that, you know, um, but the, the point of day two is to come up with those solutions together and to let the entrepreneurs in the room kind of rise to the occasion and lead, lead the charge on, on multiple solutions. Yeah. We didn't want to have like just another confab where, you know, people sort of get up and preach and you sort of, uh, you know, hang around at the snack table for the speeches you don't want to listen to. And you listen to the ones you would do and you sort of network and like good things come out of those conferences, but they, in my experience, they like emerge accidentally. Like you're sort of, you buy the ticket so that you can like be in a room with other people who care about this problem. And then it's like sort of your job to uh, build the, the, the terms of collaboration. And while we're still going to have, I mean, you're still going to have the freedom to do that at this conference. We're going to be creating like the framework for specific things to emerge that are actionable and, and, and that, that, that yield essentially like a, a, a viable prototype by the end of the conversation. And, um, so the, the, the hope is that we're, we're, we're introducing something a little bit different to this space. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, obviously what can be done about this problem? The answer is we don't know. That's why we're hosting this conference to try to get smart people together. But I want to talk about some possible like categories of solutions that we've identified. Um, it's like there, there are, there are ways to help you just sort of survive the consequences of what's going to happen. Right. Like, uh, are there, are there ways you can invest that are, that are different than the way that the mainstream is investing that is, this is sort of like a, uh, this is sort of like a, uh, climate change type of thing where, you know, the, the, the models show people what they think is going to happen, but they're like, they're still kind of living in oceanfront property. There's still like, you know, lots of interest in like Florida and the Maldives and, and, and it's like, how can we embrace the consequences of what's going to happen in our like personal investment strategies or projects that we build that are going to reflect, uh, the future that we see coming? Because like you say, like we know exactly how many one-year-olds there are going to be, you know, we know exactly how many five-year-olds those one-year-olds will be in four years. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's priced in. We know exactly what's going to happen. Um, also, like how do you build tighter local community? Are there novel ways of getting together uh either as families or even potentially like under like dating and matchmaking type circumstances so that you can find other people who want the same things that you want and maybe who are trying to inculcate the same uh, values that you're trying to preserve as, as you know, like we say, these, these, these traditions become thinner. Um, I sort of view it almost as like, uh, 
almost as like a conservation project. Like if, if you had an endangered species, you know, how, how do you get them together and under like, you know, cause like you can bring the pandas together, but if they're in this really artificial environment and they, they sort of uh, finicky at the best of times, it can be really hard to, to create fertility under those circumstances. So like, what's the most natural way that we could get men and women together who care about this to build something, uh, to, to build a family. And the second category of possible solutions is like, how could we, how could we actually disentangle ourselves from this problem? Um, and that gets into like maybe a little bit, uh, you know, bigger picture, wilder ideas about like network states or, or expat opportunities or like, how can we make ourselves more mobile and more flexible so that we're able to connect with people all over the world, uh, on this problem. And then the third category of what we want to look at is like, are there ways that we could actually like reverse this trend for everybody? Like right the ship. Are there, are there cultural artifacts that we could create is there art or entertainment are there policy solutions that we could propound you know a lot of a lot of really uh basic things have been tried um that are that are well within kind of the individual liberal overton window um but there are things that haven't been tried and and uh you know not not <laughs> it makes me think like so, so Malcolm and Simone Collins on, on this topic, who they're, they're going to be involved in the conference. Um, th they mentioned that like, we have to, we have to solve this problem voluntarily or else authoritarian governments will, will solve it forcibly. And, uh, I'm actually skeptical that like, uh, governments would be able to get their act together to even do that if they wanted to. But, but I do think that there are, more voluntary policy incentives that have not been tried yet. So uh, that's that's like the scope of, and I, I realize all of those are very vague, and it's sort of because we're not, um, you know, this is this this conference is not going to be us like pounding the pulpit, like let let's tell you what the solution is. This is very much we want to hear from you and and uh, benefit from your expertise. To, speaking to all those solutions, you know. The, we're basically going through this great filter right now. There's a whole lot of second order effects that we also want to consider. Like the people who are having kids today, they're unique in some way, or at least their bell curve is going <laughs> to be shaped differently on certain dimensions. Right. Uh, and, and, and so it's, it's not just planning for how to weather this storm, you know, demographically as the numbers go down, but also what is the future population going to look like if there's this intense selective pressure uh, against cult certain cultural memes are basically acting as, uh, a, what would you call contraceptive? <laughs> yeah. There are certain memes out there that are highly contraceptive. Um, and are those memes going to be around in 20, 30 years? Uh, are they going to find the hosts, the genetic hosts to, to carry those memes on? So there's, there's lots of implications and that's going to inform all the different solution designs that, that, that we kind of look at. And I, I think we can only talk about and ideate on those things in a closed room. 
Yeah, I yeah, and I I wanted to I wanted to strike the right balance between like I want everybody to have a good time and 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 feel feel comfortable. That includes the people who want to feel comfortable expressing unorthodox opinions, but also the comfort of people who 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 find some categories of unorthodox opinions to be really like kind of accusatory toward like them and, and people like them. And, 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 and uh, we're focused on making the dialogue as honest and as good as, as full of goodwill as it possibly can be. And one of the ways that's going to be facilitated is like you said, because these groups are going to be small, it's going to be a much more like personal setting than for instance, a shouting match on Twitter it's going to be much, and, and it's, there's going to be like people are going to be selected into the, uh, or they're going to select themselves into the genres of solution that they find the most compelling. And so it'll be sort of in the micro, in the conference, you'll be able to kind of identify, because like, for instance, we've talked about like the, uh, the babies in bags and surrogacy and, and, and lots of like transhumanist solutions uh, to this problem in the past. And like, that's not where I think the solution lies. So like, I probably wouldn't jump on to like that team, but if there is enough people who think that's a good idea, they'll go form a team and they'll go work on that. And then we'll bring it back and we'll all talk about it. And, um, and I, I think I think you have to, when you're in a situation like this where you don't know what the solutions are, you have to create a little bit of a uh, of an ecosystem, and so that's that's kind of what we're driving at with the, with the structure of the workshops. Yeah, you have to be open minded to be closed minded, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I want to I want to close with. Just like what happens if we don't do anything about this? Like what happens if we don't try to find these solutions? And what that amounts to for me is I have to make a bet that, I mean, like I feel lucky that I found my wife in the same sense that lots of people feel lucky that they found their their spouse. Um, but yeah, I you think- said that on your LinkedIn post the other day. I read that. That's great. <laughs> but but I, I also feel like there was an element of the circumstances in which that contact happened were extraordinary at the time and much more scarce, more rare now. Um and and you know, because of you know my my religious faith you know i had i had people to we had people volunteer to run our baby shower so we didn't like we didn't buy baby clothes until like baby number four and you know we had people helping us with like the early stages of being a married couple under conditions of like instead of them saying like you know, because the the support that people tend to get in their relationships often is like, you're so great. They don't deserve you. 
this is like, I'm so on your side. Like basically acting in the interests of that one individual uh, in this like fiercely loyal, which, you know, there's something admirable, admirable about that. But like we had people who were like, you're both pretty good kids. Let's try to help you stay married. Like, let's try to help, like, let's figure this out in the interest of this bigger thing that you're trying to accomplish. And so like just, just the fact that I went to BYU, which is like this essentially like breeding program, (laughs) it's just sucking up all of the, uh, all of the sort of high GPA Latter-day Saints all over the world and, and, and uh, kind of, putting them in a jar and shaking them up that in itself is this incredible like social technology that like exists almost nowhere else nowadays you know my kids will still benefit from some of that that sociocultural infrastructure uh in in ways that a lot of people don't but they're gonna have to be at least as lucky as i was probably a lot luckier to to, to close the deal uh as far as as far as me having grandchildren <laughs> And it's, I mean, it's going to be harder for them to find mates. It's going to be harder for them to afford children because they're going to have this wild, you know, inverse dependency situation. They're going to have much more economic uncertainty. And unless I build it for them, they're going to have a much smaller support network uh, than I had because my, uh, my extended family was enormous at the time. And their extended family would be quite small. And so, yeah, if, if, we don't, if we don't take action on this, um, we're going to be leaving our kids in a, in a much more challenging situation in a way that's going to have really serious ramifications for them. So, like, we're obviously bought in. We're, I mean, we're, we're, we're literally bought in, invested on this project because we're we're, we're putting up the capital to make it happen, but excited to get some of these other folks involved as well. Yeah. I can't wait to see who shows up and what the, you know, how our circle of allies on this issue can grow. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to it, man. December 1st, December one, Austin, Austin, Texas, and it's, it's natalism.org. You can get your tickets there and, uh, also sign up for, the newsletter so we'll have we have an updates uh from from now until the conference so yep natalism.org all right drew it's been great talking to you thanks a lot you too man 